This morning we're starting a new sermon series. We're going to be in the book of Judges in your Old Testament. So I would encourage you this morning to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles as we embark on this horrorful Old Testament book. So you're going to leave most weeks discouraged, depressed, and scared for your life. However, one of the main reasons I chose this book was to communicate to you all that we don't always leave church every Sunday feeling great about ourselves. In fact, if you're going to read all of the Bible as we've been doing this year, all 66 books, you are going to come across books where you read things that frighten you and scare you and make you wonder what in the world God was thinking by putting this in his holy canon. But he did, and this book is actually an awesome book to study. And I'm excited to work our way through this book together as a church. This is not your Sunday school type book. So if you were a child outside of Samson and Gideon, you probably never did another story in the book of Judges because those are some of the few ones that are actually G-rated. This book is full of strife, division, violence, pride, unfaithfulness. That is what characterizes the book of Judges. But it's also, most importantly, the story of a faithful God who loves his covenant people in spite of their wickedness. And that's what we're going to be looking at here over the next few months. So today I'm going to give you a broad overview of the book because the first chapter and the first five verses of chapter 2 provide basically the introduction for the book of Judges. We can actually look at the very first verse in the book to give us information about the time frame. Anytime you open up a new book of Scripture, we have to figure out where it fits in the overall historical timeline of the Bible. And in Joshua, excuse me, Judges 1, verse 1, this is what we read. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. Now in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the death of a key leader often serves as the transition point for a new part of its history. So for instance, if you go back in Exodus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we're told that all of Jacob's family had passed away. That ended the patriarchal era of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and ushered in the leadership of Moses. And in Joshua 1.1, we're told about the death of Moses, which ushers in the leadership of Joshua, which is the period of the conquest of Canaan. And now in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Joshua had passed away, signaling to us, the readers, that we are in now the period of another transition, within the life of Israel. And this transition is the settlement within Canaan. So if the book of Joshua, specifically the first 12 chapters, focuses on the conquest of Canaan, Judges is about the Israelites now settling in and establishing roots in all of those, all of those locations 
that they conquered in Judges. Now, we are not given a lot of information about who wrote the book of Judges. Some speculate that perhaps Samuel wrote the book of Judges, but we don't really know for sure. Now, we're not going to have time today to read every single verse in chapter 1 and the first five verses of chapter 2, but we're going to go through this, broadly speaking, and kind of summarize what's going on at this point in history and why it matters for us as believers in Jesus Christ. So it's broken down into three main sections or three main points. The first is the reward for obedience. Number two, the danger of partial obedience. And then number three, the punishment for disobedience. So you have the reward for obedience, the danger of partial obedience, and the punishment for disobedience. Are you ready for this book? Are you excited? I don't see a lot of excited faces out there. Here we go. Judges chapter 1. The book of Judges starts out incredibly strong. After the death of Joshua, the text tells us, the people go before the Lord and they inquire what should be done next. Now, this is a wise decision. One of the few wise decisions that you find the people of Israel doing in this book. This is exactly what they should have done. Notice that in all moments of transition up to this point, there has been a leader that had kind of been prepared for the moment of leadership. Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph, Joseph to Moses, Moses to Joshua. But when you get to Judges, Joshua to what? There's a void. Now, it's not Joshua's fault necessarily, But there is clearly a void when you get to the book of Judges. After Joshua passes away, there is not someone to step up and take his place as the leader of Israel. And so the Israelites do the right thing. They go before the Lord. They inquire of him. He had been faithful to them through the exodus, through the wilderness journey, the conquest of Canaan. They go before him and they ask, who should go out of our tribes and lead us? the answer God gives is the tribe of Judah. Judah will be the one in Judges chapter 1 who takes the lead. Why is Judah so important? Because it is the tribe from which our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes from. But after the death of Joshua, there is this void. And it ends up causing the Israelites great pain and great heartache throughout this book. But Judah takes the reins in this moment. And he asks one of his fellow tribes, Simeon, to come alongside of him and help defeat the Canaanites. You pick up on that in verse 3 of chapter 1. This tag team effort of Judah and Simeon is a sign of unity within the tribes. This is a good thing. We want unity within the tribes of Israel at this point in the story. And as we move our way through this book, you are going to see less and less unity amongst the tribes. Through this tag team effort of Judah and Simeon, they defeat 10,000 of the Canaanites, and they defeat one of the key leaders at this point, Adonai Bezek. Look at verse 6. Here's what the book of Judges tells us. Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
That seems not only harsh, but it also seems peculiar. Except for the fact that Adonai Bezek, when he was a leader, had done the same thing to 70 leaders, and they would collect scraps under his table. So the Israelites in this moment are actually practicing a common Old Testament ethic, which is what? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, what somebody has done to you, you can do back to them. Now, what about Jesus? What does Jesus say about this passage? He eliminates this way of thinking in the new covenant. But we're not in the new covenant right now, are we? We're in the old covenant. He had done this to others, so the Israelites did it to him. But even though this was within the confines of the Old Testament law, this is actually not what the Israelites were supposed to be doing. Now, what I want to show you as we work our way through chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is that the Israelites are so quick to forget what God had told them recently through his giving of the law. So look for a moment at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. Because in that passage, God had given specific instructions about what the Israelites were to do when they conquered other nations. Here's what it says. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Now, what the author of Judges does not do in this passage is step in and explicitly tell us that the Israelites cutting off the thumbs and the big toes was bad. Why does he not say that? Because the author of Judges is assuming that the original audience and now us as the audience understand the Old Testament law. That we should understand that this is not appropriate. Because earlier in Deuteronomy 20, God clearly told the Israelites, every nation that you go in to possess, completely drive them out and wipe them out. Everyone. Now a hush fell across the room in that moment. God is using the Israelites in this passage and throughout the book of Judges and throughout the conquest of Canaan to act as his people to carry out his judgment upon all of the opposing nations. Do you believe that God is just? If you believe that God is just, you have to trust in faith that what God is telling the Israelites to do in this passage is appropriate. It doesn't mean you're going to be comfortable with it. It doesn't mean you're not going to wrestle with it. But the Israelites are serving as God's ambassadors throughout the book of Judges to carry out his judgment upon all of the nations that the Israelites will end up possessing. Oftentimes, when you read Old Testament narrative, not just in Judges, but in Genesis and all sorts of other places, the narrator does not always give us his commentary about what's happening. He expects you to understand why this would be appropriate or why it would not be appropriate. So when we get to those stories in Genesis about Abraham basically betraying his wife and giving her up to be killed in order to save his life, Moses doesn't come in after that and say, Abraham should not have done this. 
He is assuming that we know Abraham should not have done this. And when Abraham takes on concubines and David takes on midwives and all of these things, the narrator does not come in and say, David should not have had multiple wives. It's assumed that you know that. The Old Testament is not condoning these types of behavior. Just because the narrators don't step in and say this is wrong does not mean that what you're reading is holy and right. That's very common in Old Testament narrative. So while God gave the Israelites here victory over Adonai Bezek, they were not ultimately obedient to what God had called them to do. How do we know this? Look at verse 7. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. That's disobedience. That is not what they were supposed to do. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. That is the narrator telling us that is not what God commanded them to do. We see the Israelites, though, early on in this chapter, continuing to have success as they go from nation to nation. They conquer Jerusalem in verse 8. In verse 9, the hill country and the lowland. In verse 10, Hebron, which becomes the first capital of King David's reign when he becomes king. In verses 11 through 15, we see Israel conquering Debir and Caleb, one of two spies that recommended that the Israelites take the promised land, pledges that whoever could defeat Debir could have his daughter Aksa as a wife. And in the story, Othniel, who becomes the first judge mentioned in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, defeats Debir and takes Aksa as his wife. And Caleb gives Othniel his daughter in marriage. And she goes on to ask for a spring of water, So why is this story in here? Why is it relevant? The narrator is trying to communicate to us in the early verses of chapter 1, specifically the the first 20 verses. God is trying to give us a picture of success. You have springs of water. You have land. You have marriage. God is communicating that those who are obedient to him will receive blessings. And then we have another episode in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 1. But throughout these various episodes, even though God continues to bless his people, we begin to see small hints of disobedience, small cracks in the armor, if you will. Look at verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. They were not supposed to do that. They were not supposed to go in and settle with the people. Look at verses 17 and 18. Judah and Simeon have victory over Gaza, Ashkelon, Zephoth, and Ekron. But look at verse 19. It says this, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. So we see some success. But then it says, But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Think about that for a moment. All of the times that God has provided for his people up to this point, and all of a sudden, the Israelites seem to be concerned about these chariots of iron. This is the first hint, really, that they are beginning to doubt 
that the God of Israel can actually help them conquer these nations. If you jump back, which we're going to, Joshua chapter 17, look at what this text says about the very thing that we just read in the book of Judges. Joshua 17, 17 and 18. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Chariots of iron are nothing for Yahweh to overcome. But the Israelites begin to doubt that God can actually provide for him for them. And perhaps this is part of the problem for you and me as well as it is for the Israelites. Because when sin begins to slowly creep into our hearts and our minds, it deceives us into thinking that God is not able to do what he says he can do. That is what sin does. It deceives, it distorts, and it sears the conscience as we talk about all of the time. The Israelites were not ultimately being obedient to what God had called them to do. And over time, these seemingly minor moments of disobedience, even though God is continuing to give them the land, he's continuing to give them success and victory over their enemies. Over time, these small moments of disobedience are going to take a cumulative effect. We know God's word says to be kind and compassionate to those within the family of God. But in those moments of sin, isn't it just so much easier to pop off at the mouth and just ignore what God teaches? We know that God's word says that sex between a man and a woman should be within the confines of marriage. But when we look around us and we see everyone else operating with a different ethic, we begin to doubt what God's word says. And we begin to wonder, what's the big deal? All of my friends, all of my neighbors, their lives seem to be fine. That's when sin begins to distort our thinking. Satan tries to pull us away from what the Word of God actually says. So as we work our way through this book, brothers and sisters, before you condemn and look down on the Israelites in this passage, point the finger back at yourself. We might not be cutting off thumbs and big toes, but we are guilty of sin every single day. Number two, we see the danger of partial obedience. The danger of partial obedience. In verse 21 of chapter 1, the narrative begins to take a different tone. In those first 20 verses, even though they weren't flawlessly obedient, God was still blessing his people. He was giving them victory over their enemies. But something changes in verse 21 of chapter 1. And for the remainder of our passage today, the text reveals a pattern of disobedience. Look at verse 21. 
Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. And the text says the Jebusites lived with the people of Jerusalem, excuse me, with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verses 22 to 26, Joseph went up against Bethel and the spies found a man and they asked him for entrance into the city and they destroyed the city, but they let the man live. And then in verse 26, we're told, and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And that is its name to this day. You read this text and you think, what is the big deal? They destroyed the city and they spared a life. How can that be considered disobedience? You're missing the point of why God asked his people to do this. He knew that his people were not strong enough to overcome the culture, the Canaanite culture of the day. It's not just the land that God is concerned about. He wants to eliminate all Canaanite culture so that he can reign supreme as the one true God. One commentator said this, it's not just a man and his family that survive, but Canaanite culture in a very tangible form. A city, Luz, has not so much been conquered as moved. The end result is that two cities, one Israelite and the other Canaanite, exist side by side. And this is the problem. Because God is not interested in sharing his glory with anyone else. And he is trying to demonstrate that through the elimination of all of these different Canaanite groups. He's a jealous God. And his decision to eliminate all other tribes and cultures is perfectly within his right as the God of the universe. In verses 27 to 36, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to grab a pen and underline Every time you see this recurring phrase in those verses, did not drive out. Verse 27, Manasseh. Verse 29, Ephraim. Verse 30, Zebulun. Verse 31, Asher. Verse 33, Naphtali. You picking up on a theme here? Over and over again, the author of Judges is communicating to us, the Israelites did not drive out, did not drive out, did not drive out, did not drive out. Why? So that we pick up, as the dumb human beings that we are, that the Israelites are disobedient in this passage to what God called them to be. In addition, not only do they not drive out all of these nations as God clearly commanded, they subject many of these groups to forced labor. In verse 28, in verse 30, in verse 33, in verse 35. Now, here's probably what the Israelites were thinking. I'm sure the Israelites were thinking, I know God said that we need to completely drive out and wipe out all of these various groups, but it would be much more efficient if instead of driving them out, we let them work for us. We put them to work. We subject them to slavery. Do you see the irony in this passage? What just happened to the Israelites a couple of books over 
in Exodus. What were they crying out to God for over and over again? That he would deliver them from what? Bondage to slavery. Now, one of two things is happening in the text here. Number one, the Israelites either completely forgot the history of the Exodus, which there's no way that could happen, because if you are a Jew, you always remember the story of the Exodus. It is like the crucial event in your faith. So that is not going on here. Even though technically it's a possibility, I'm telling you that's not the case. Or number two, they don't really care about putting people into forced labor because they're choosing political and military expediency over obedience to God. Here's what Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 tell us. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 7 says, God heard the cries of his people. What were they crying about? The fact that they were enslaved. And in this passage in Judges, they seem to really not care at all that they're about to do the exact same thing to other nations that God delivered them from. The quick snapshot in verses 27 to 36 of chapter 1 It shows us that even though the Israelites had success in conquering all these nations, they were not completely obedient to what God had asked them to do. And while that doesn't lead to immediate consequences in chapter 1, it's coming. We're going to see the consequences of this disobedience throughout the book of Judges. Partial obedience, you've heard it before, partial obedience is disobedience. The book of Judges is prime biblical argument for that sentence and that phrase that we often use. Partial obedience is always disobedience. Barry Webb in his commentary says this, the world offers us infinite opportunities for compromise. Israel's world was Canaan with its false gods and beguiling culture. Ours is the fast-paced, hedonistic, pluralistic, consumer culture in which everything is possible and nothing forbidden except intolerance. The opportunities to compromise are well-nigh overwhelming, and the pressure to do so is immense. Brothers and sisters, we're not living in ancient Israel but we are being pulled to compromise our convictions and to lessen what the Word of God teaches, it seems like almost on a daily basis. We might not be living in the time of the judges, but we must stand firm on what God's Word teaches from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. 
And then number three, we come to the part of the text where God communicates the punishment for disobedience. And it's not good news, by the way. The punishment for disobedience finally happens in the first five verses of chapter 2. The angel of the Lord appears. And that angel of the Lord appears three additional times in the book of Judges. Judges 5, Judges 6, Judges 13. And the angel of the Lord is speaking on behalf of God in this passage. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say... I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. That's the consequences for Israel's disobedience. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, in some ways, serve as the the precursor to everything else you're going to read about in the book of Judges where God is going to discipline and punish his people for disobedience. The Hebrew word for snare there can be understood meaning to chase or to hunt. So for the rest of the book of Judges, all of these tribes, all of these nations that the Israelites refuse to drive out, they are going to chase down. They are going to hunt the Israelites. They are going to cause them to give in to sin, cause them to worship other gods. In Exodus chapter 23, this is what God tells us. He gives us further background about what the Israelites should have been thinking at this point. He says, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods, and they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The angel of the Lord in Judges is only repeating what the people of Israel had already heard. This is not a new form of judgment. This is a form of judgment that God originally gave the Israelites when he gives them his law. So after the angel of the Lord brings his message, the people respond in verses 4 and 5 in a very positive way. The text tells us that they weep and they sacrificed to the Lord. Bacham actually means weepers. The people receive the message from the angel, and they repent, and they offer sacrifices. Unfortunately, this repentance is short-lived, and for the rest of this book, the people will drift further and further away from that covenant relationship that God had established with them all the way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. So as we continue to work our way through this book, you're going to read story after story of Israel's 
unfaithfulness to God. But you can leave encouraged because in every single story that we will read, God stays faithful to the covenant that he made with his people. The God of Israel is faithful. And we're going to see next week when we get into this cycle of the judges that we'll talk about next week, that every time God raises up a various judge, he delivers his people from physical bondage and he provides leadership for his people in spite of their sin. And if you're in this room today and you are in Christ, God demonstrated his faithfulness to you by sending his son, the ultimate leader, to provide freedom of spiritual bondage for you because of your sin. You know, some mornings I wake up, we all wake up if you're in Christ today as followers of Jesus, and we begin just another day of sin and rebellion. Because that's who we are at our core. Even with the Holy Spirit occupying our hearts, we are still prone to wonder, as the great hymn of our faith says. We are prone to wonder, prone to sin, prone to rebellion. And yet, through confession of sin and repentance, God accepts us and forgives us in spite of our wrongdoings. So if you're in Christ today, you view the book of Judges as a reminder, yes, of your sinfulness, but also of the constant outpouring of God's grace and mercy and covenant faithfulness to you. But if you're not in Christ today, I beg of you, turn from your sin. Repent. Becoming a Christian does not mean you will stop sinning. But it does mean that when you offer that confession of sin to God, he will forgive you. This book will teach us as Christians to be careful before we judge others, but also to remember that the God that we serve is faithful to the covenant that he made with his people. Let's pray. God, sometimes we come across challenging passages of Scripture, challenging books, and we're prone to skip over those books or ignore them or not talk about them. But we know what's most helpful in our discipleship is to study all of them and to learn what you have to teach us in every one of these books. So I pray that you would continue to shape our hearts as we study this wonderful Old Testament book. And for those of us in this room today that are in Christ, I pray that we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy in spite of our fallen nature. And for any that are not in Christ, I pray that they would receive the grace and mercy that you have for them. Your word tells us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cling to that promise from your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.